Blog Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Inclusive Class Podcast. Through interviews and discussions, it's our goal to explore the promise and practice of inclusive education. I'm Nicole Eredix and I'm one of your hosts for the show. I'm a parent, inclusion teacher, and creator of the online resource, theinclusiveclass.com. And joining me here this morning on the Inclusive Class is my co-host, Terry Morrow. Hi, Terry. Good morning, Nicole, and welcome to all our listeners. I am Terry Morrow. I'm the author of 50 Ways to Support Your Child's Special Education, and I write about special needs for about.com at specialchildren.about.com. I'd like to mention to anybody out there listening to us live that we're not taking phone calls, no matter what it may say there on the Blog Talk radio site. But I do have the chat room open if you'd like to stop in and suggest a question. I'll try to work it in if we have time. Um, nice calm uh, end of the week here in at our house. Uh, we're in that, that little break between the first activity of the summer and the second activity of the summer. I don't know if this happens mm-hmm. to everybody, that your summer is in blocks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then yeah. you have this little bit of downtime, and it's not really enough time to do anything but it's enough time yep. to just kind of be boring. So uh, we've just entered entered the the gap between phase one and phase two. So right at the moment, it's very nice and relaxing and uh, great not having to be anywhere and great having survived another semester of college algebra, but uh, mm-hmm. looking forward to the next phase. Uh, and you've yeah. been busy, I believe. Overly busy. I'm ready for that <laughs> transition time. <laughs> I'm ready for the transition. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was on, or I posted on Facebook uh, the other week, or a couple of days ago, actually. What am I talking about? See, my timing is totally out of whack. Um, <laughs> that happened. It was 10 tips for transition for your children in the classroom. Uh-huh. And I thought, adults need that, too, for goodness yes, sake. Yes, absolutely. Yes. So, yeah, we've been playing tour guide for the last couple of weeks. And as you and I were talking about earlier, Southern California is a significant attraction for uh, yeah. visitors. So we get plenty yeah. through the summer. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think part of that is coming to see us, but for the most part it's all those other wonderful attractions yeah. around Southern California. <laughs> so anyway, our our tour guiding extravaganza ends today, and we are uh, uh, we're going to have some downtime as well. So I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> and the kids well, enjoy too. it. Yeah, thank you. I will. I will. But uh, I'm really looking forward to today's show, though. Um, I've been looking forward to it all week and thinking about it because I know that this is something that I've come across many times as a teacher in the classroom, and that's those children that are just unique in the fact that they're very bright and very capable and academically perform so well, but yet there's another side to them that you know just it's a struggle in mm-hmm. in terms of you know re- developing a relationship or feeling comfortable in a large group and those are those kids that we either consider y- unique or um maybe a little bit socially awkward uh, that we want to talk about today because those are the kids that I think can fall through the cracks in in many re- you know many regards and I think they're really uh, it's really important to pay attention and support those kids in the classroom because right. it can be a very isolating experience if you're know, going through school without 
any significant relationships or friendships mm-hmm. or, you know, just give them those sort of uh, skills to help help them through. So that's what we're talking yeah. about today. And I, I'm looking forward to it. And we have with us guest Catherine Beals. Sorry, apologize for that. Catherine is the author of Raising a Left Brain Child in a Right Brain World, and that provides strategies for helping bright, quirky, socially awkward children to thrive at home and at school. She's also the lecturer at the University of Pennsylvania Graduate School of Education and an adjunct professor at Drexel University School of Education. Welcome to the show, Catherine. Thank you. It's great to be here. Great. We're happy that you're joining us today and that we're able to talk about such an interesting topic. Uh, As I mentioned earlier, I know that myself I've come across, you know, over the years, children that just seem to, like I said, are just, you know, academically academically are, you know, coping, managing, um, socially, not so much. And unfortunately, in our school system, we as teachers not only look at the academic side of things, but then we look at the social side of things too, and we often grade children, judge not judge, but you know, observe and um, make decisions about children's behavior on so many levels. So it can certainly affect how these children are perceived and how we support them in the school, in the classroom, and at home. So looking forward to chatting with you this morning. Um, can you begin by telling us, and now I quickly gave a brief description, but you're more of the expert on this topic, what sorts of you know, quirky, unique children are we talking about here and, and the children that you talk about in your book and that you um, speak about? Um, well, by, by left-brain child, and, and I'm really just using this in the kind of casual use of left-brain, I don't mean that they are you know, left-brain dominant necessarily or anything like mm-hmm. that, but yeah, but basically... Um, it's a, a lot of what you said. It's kids who are not thriving in groups and and yet who are very uh, bright academically and um, very analytical, uh, mm-hmm. often very good at math and um, computer programming and science, but don't do well in groups. Uh, at the far end of uh, this range, and it is a range, uh, you have mm-hmm. kids that might get a diagnosis of Asperger's syndrome or high-functioning autism, but it also includes a large number of kids who would not have any diagnosis at all and, and shouldn't really have um, one. Uh, uh, and, and so we, uh, what I have found, though, is that this group of, uh, this type of child is having more and more difficulty now. You know, it's, it's, they stand mm-hmm. out more as a group than they did a generation ago, and that has a lot to do with changes in classroom practices and uh, mm-hmm. greater greater as you said a greater emphasis on looking at social aspects of children um beyond academics. Mhm. Yeah, I find as a teacher over the years we have definitely started to look at the socialization of the child and how they're interacting with their peers as a really important component of their development and we we are quick to make you know observations in a classroom setting because things happen so quickly and you get these little snippets and you piece it together and you think, huh, you know, well, I'm not really sure what's going on here, but um, this is my call on how they're interacting socially. And sometimes that's the wrong, you know, the wrong, you know, it's a quick observation and it's the wrong um, point uh, that we're trying to make about these kids. So I think it's great that you're bringing more awareness 
to not only families but to schools as well. And what are the biggest social obstacles then that kids that are unique, quirky, socially awkward, what kinds of obstacles socially do they face? The biggest obstacles they face are in situations where they aren't choosing to be in a group but are uh, expected to be in a group. And this is the kind of thing that tends to happen more at school than outside Mm -hmm. of school. Um, So there is an expectation that today's teacher uh, has students spend lots of time doing group work, and there is generally a trend for teachers to assign the groups and for groups to be deliberately um, heterogeneous in terms of ability. And so what that tends to mean is, particularly for the left brain child, is uh, that he or she is placed in a group of kids that um, he or she may not be comfortable with or you know, kindred spirit with in, in terms of interests and abilities, Mm-hmm. and at the same time um, expected to cooperate well in the group and, and be an active member. And the the thing that is <clears throat> excuse me, tricky is that uh, it's the, the, really the, the, the aspects of it are the, the lack of choice in the, in the selection process. So these kids are not necessarily generally totally unsocial, but they tend to do really well with, other quirky kids, other like-minded kids, and there may not be any other such children in the class or or there may be only one other who's in a different group. So Mm -hmm. that's really the the big challenge. And and then the expectation of active cooperation is very challenging uh, often for these these kids. Mm -hmm. So what you're finding is that for the most part it's being a part of a larger group and how they're interacting, not so much one-on-one but with... More than one child. Yeah, typically more these than groups one are, exactly, yeah, so typically these groups are more on the order of four to five kids in the class, um, and there might be um, several simultaneous groups occurring. And actually that raises another concern, which is the potential for subtle bullying and shunning of these awkward kids. Um, so, you know, you, you probably know as a teacher that you can't simultaneously be aware of absolutely everything that is going on Mm-hmm. Um, with four or five groups in a class, and so a lot of very subtle stuff uh, can easily slip under the ra- radar. So, you know, these kids tend not to be the popular kids, and mm-hmm. they may uh, be cold-shouldered or otherwise shunned or subtly teased in a, in a group setting um, and, and that is unfortunately necessarily somewhat unsupervised simply because the teacher can't be sitting with mm-hmm. each group simultaneously. So that's the other issue. Right, right. And now the reason why I came across your book and the work that you were doing was an article that you had written several months ago about grading practices in a classroom and how that affects a socially awkward child. Yeah. And so my next question is how do these kids fare overall in the classroom setting academically, um, with retur- in terms of grades and the report cards and you know the, the judgment calls that that they're given by teachers. Yeah, so that's them. one thing. It's it, you know it's hard to have really overall statistics, but what I uh, have observed a lot now is a change from the way things used to be. So, for one thing, grades are more and more um, a reflection of not just of academic development but of social and emotional development. Um, this idea of grading the whole child, and then there are uh, specific uh, things that that people look at now, like you know how well does the child cooperate in the group, 
and also uh, and, and participate in class. And then you have one of the things I, I included in my article was a rubric for a science presentation. So there are things like presentation skills, how well do you do, how, do, how well does the child do when they get up in front of the class and present mm-hmm. something. And so uh, the problem with this is that, you know, ideally a, an evaluation system is designed to give feedback to the teacher and the student about things that then are part of the curriculum that are going to be addressed um, mm-hmm. and that realistically can be addressed. But the social and emotional stuff, we don't really know uh, whether this is something that um, classroom teachers can then, you know, take steps to accelerate social and emotional development and either even whether having putting students in groups who are not comfortable in groups is the way the best way to go about fostering that development and then uh and then there's the issue of well should this stuff kind of this which is largely developmental figure into grades that really yeah. maybe should be more of a reflection of what was taught and not what was expected mhm mhm that's such a great point i know that when you're talking about presentation skills, which we often, as you know, I'm speaking from my own personal experience, that's often not taught necessarily. That's something that we just assume that people yeah. will know as a gradual part of development and learning as they get older. That you look people in the eye when you speak to them. Those are the sort of the more social, socially acceptable norms of, you know, behavior. Yeah. Uh, in larger groups, and we assume that that our students will know that. And when it comes to grading, and we don't see that, we can often go, you know, that's kind of a reflection on their overall performance, which necessarily isn't the case, right? So, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's uh, in- interesting. Are, yes, I think, the, I think the, that's the concern. The, yeah. I'm sorry, just just throwing something out here. The quirky kids you're talking about, do they generally have social awkwardness with everyone or are they more comfortable with adults? I know a lot of times kids who have trouble relating to their peers sometimes get along really well with, with, are are much more comfortable with grown-ups. And I wonder if that has any dynamic in terms of the teacher grading, if if they have have a personal connection with the kid that the kid isn't able to get with their peers. Um, yeah, that's a good point. Um, I think it depends on the teacher. Uh, so it's true. Yeah. It's certainly very true that uh, a lot of these kids do better with adults. Um, they're and they do better one on one, and adult situations mm-hmm. might tend to be one on one. And they do better with people who share some of their interests. And so often it right. will be someone older who is kind mm-hmm. of might be into a more grown up topic. Uh, but whether the particular teacher they have is someone they connect well with, sometimes uh, you actually have an opposite effect where teachers tend to be very social and tend to have been more of a social kid growing up, and they may not really know what Mm -hmm. to make of kids like this. And today, in this day and age, we have such a tendency towards pathologizing people who don't seem socially normal uh, that teachers often wonder if there's something wrong uh, Mm -hmm. when there may not really clinically be anything wrong with the child. Yeah, that's a great point. Sorry, Um, go ahead, Terry. What sort of obstacles do these kids face getting a, the next step after public school, getting into uh, selective colleges or getting into special academic programs? Is, is yeah. there a problem for them with that? Um, yeah, the, the issue, well, so part of it is that, in fact, grades do seem to reflect more and more the social, uh, emotional 
um, aspects of things. So, you know, to the extent that your grades are going to help determine what happens next, mm -hmm. um, that's going to yeah. be a problem. Um, and then on top of that, uh, the part of my concern is what's happening with gifted programming, and there is a mm -hmm. trend towards trying to uh, look at a broader range of traits in, for various reasons, in, in deciding who should go into a gifted program. And so one of the things that people are now looking at uh, beyond academics is uh, social maturity. And yeah. where that really gets to be a problem for these kids is that they often aren't, they don't come across as particularly socially mature, but part of the reason for that may be that they're under-stimulated in class and they really need some more, something more academically challenging. So they would actually do better, even socially um, and, and emotionally and behaviorally, in a gifted program, and yet they can't get in because they don't look sufficiently mature uh, in their current situation. Mm -hmm. So that's mm -hmm. one big concern, that these kids are kind of not getting enough of an academic challenge um, throughout their uh, primary secondary experience. And then, of course, that's going to affect, all of those things are going to affect uh, college uh admissions. And then mm -hmm. on top of that, you have more and more of a consideration of quote unquote leadership skills when yeah. and college is looking at people and these are not the sort of kids who are going to be developing uh or looking in their activities as if they have leadership uh experience necessarily for those same mm -hmm. social reasons. Mm -hmm. That's a sorry just to inter interject there. That's a great point because I'm looking at my son here who is coming up to write his college application, and there's a heavy emphasis on leadership skills and the groups that you've joined and the clubs and the activities that you're doing, and it's a very there's a very large social component to it, which colleges look as part of the profile of the student. And yeah, if you've got a child that necessarily isn't comfortable with that, then it's um, to their detriment, it seems. Yeah, and then so then what they have are their grades and their test scores. And, that, and yet the grades are maybe not what they might have been by a, the standards of a generation ago. And yet a college may look at a, a B in chemistry and not realize that the B might have been more, uh, you know, what brought the grade down to a B might have been more about group participation in the lab um, and maybe to some extent organizational skills or who knows, and not so much about the ability to handle the concepts of chemistry. So the mm -hmm. grades don't necessarily college looking at the grades isn't necessarily going to know what what was the reason and what really reflects ability academic ability. Yeah. When they do get 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 to college, do some of these problems go away or is or are colleges also putting an emphasis on groups and and uh, social aspects? That's um, a really good question. So generally generally a lot less. However, there is a trend towards uh, teamwork in college. So there's this overall sense among certain people that uh, 21st century jobs are all about teamwork uh, more than they used to be and that therefore we need to put kids in teams. And mm -hmm. so some colleges have uh, are following this. But what's interesting is that it's often not the choice of professors that this is an optimal way yeah. To teach, but what's happening uh -huh. is that accreditation committees are reaccreditation mm. committees are um, putting pressure on professors. I actually know some professors who are being told you need to have kids working in groups now, yeah. uh, and so it's there's a tension there, and there's a concern yeah. about what the trend is. 
Yeah, that's it's making it difficult all the way along. What can teachers and schools do to support these students? Clearly, we have to try to do something to help give them some of these skills um, if they're going to be continually called on. You're talking about the, the sort of cooperative skills and, and that kind of yeah, thing? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, the first thing, yeah. Just in general, I mean, I what, think, what, what do teachers and schools need to do? Either give them the skills yeah. or work on changing what yeah. they're going to need, I guess. Right. Right. Yeah, I mean that's the question to ask is, you know, to what extent do we do we know how to teach these skills? Um, you know, not everybody is going to acquire every skill and not every job is going to require the skill either. So, um, yeah. you know, and and to what extent are teachers trained in how to teach leadership or how to teach yeah. cooperation as opposed to how to mm-hmm. teach math, right? So there's mm-hmm. a right. question that we might not even know what we're doing yet. Um so perhaps more research on that is one of the steps. Is like you know what what actually mm-hmm. is a realistic expectation, um, and then the other right. thing to be maybe a little skeptical about is, you know, are is it really the case that the kind of jobs these kids are going to end up be best suited to really require mm-hmm. the kinds of cooperation that teachers are expecting students to engage yeah. in class? So there's actually really mm-hmm. a big difference between uh, professional teams and classroom teams. Huge, in a lot, a, lot, yeah. a lot of measures, yeah. Yeah. And I, w- I mean, I would think that as as jobs become more and more internet based, yeah. you're going to be there's a much better, greater chance that you're going to be sitting in a desk in your house by yourself, which will suit these kids just fine. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, so it seems like sort of an old model uh, that yeah, you're that's training really kids for now. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think the thing is that people confuse collaboration with cooperation. Mm-hmm. So it right. is true that there are a lot of jobs in which multiple people are working on multiple parts of a problem toward them mm-hmm. together, but they're not sitting in a room together chatting. Yeah. And that's, mm-hmm. there's a huge difference between those two yes. skills. And is the classroom really replicating the the one, yeah, especially the Internet-based version where people aren't actually socializing at all they're they're just doing different parts of a pro, pro, a problem and then communicating about it perhaps over the yeah, internet making a presentation maybe posting your thing to google docs and pointing to something and that's a completely different skill set yeah which would mm-hmm. i think fit these kids pretty well so yeah. it's you know i think and schools need to rethink a little bit so but a lot of teachers are still here. in the old paradigm what uh, what types of strategies then? <clears throat> sorry, can teachers use with these children to help yeah. them succeed? Well, I guess I would partly say that uh, get, just giving the child the option to work on their own is something that yeah. needs to be considered more than it is. And you know, these kids are not necessarily uh, that difficult to teach because they tend to be very motivated and independent. So. To some extent, while everybody else is doing a group project, uh, you could count on a kid like this to sit on their own and get a lot done productively uh, at their own at their own rate, um, following their own kind of interests or, or whatever it is they're doing. So mm-hmm. I would advocate a return to that to offering that option and not worrying so much about whether this kid is missing out on a, an important life skill by not sitting in a in a group. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then uh, and go sorry, go ahead, Terry. <laughs> no, you you no, can. I, well, I was just going to branch off on that. 
in terms of a classroom setting, so encouraging or giving the child choice, I suppose, would be the first step. Well, yeah. uh, backing up a bit, the first step would be raising awareness for children that are like this in the classroom and then giving them more choices. And then what about in ter- terms of teaching a social skills program? Do you recommend that at all or...? Well, what I say is, what I talk about in my book is that there are people out there who are trained um, in social skills therapy. That you just don't tend to find them in in schools. You have speech therapists who sometimes work on conversation skills, but you don't have someone who's kind of working on the gamut of of social skills and how to feel more comfortable with eye contact and that kind of thing. And and there really is a training involved to that sort of thing. So at the moment, the best option for a kid. Uh, for that kind of uh, training, which could be a good idea for some of these kids, uh, it would be outside the school. Okay. And that's okay. something that you can get referrals for and coverage for. So it's not as if we're saying, you know, you're on your own here um, financially, but it it just it, the question is, you know, does the school really have the expertise? And I think in most cases that the expertise isn't in, in present in the school. Right. Right. Good. Thank you. You know, it seems like this. This really fits in well, Nicole, with a lot of things we talk about with inclusion. It's it's really sort of mm-hmm. differentiated instruction. It's saying, you know, we usually think of that more academically, but it's also true in terms of your learning style or your social style, mm-hmm. you know, looking at how the kid can best access the lesson and, and be uh, um, graded in it. And uh, there exactly. seems to be no reason why it couldn't be made to work for everybody, that trying to fit everybody into one mold uh, is is not going to work for a significant portion of your classroom in different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and what can parents do to help with this? Uh, well, I think parents need to um, be aware of what's going on at school. So they're not necessarily going to know how much things have changed since they were in school and how much <laughs> time the kid might be, you know, doing, sending in groups. Yeah. And so their kid may be coming home all frustrated and upset, and they might not know why. Uh, mm-hmm. And they might be imagining a more typical, for them, more typical situation than what their yeah. child is experiencing. So that's part of it. And then to really, uh, you know, when talking to teachers, uh, bring in this this differentiated instruction idea and, uh, you know, mention things like learning styles even, because the uh, at the same time that we have, uh, yes, an increasingly kind of one-size-fits-all with the common core, too, you know, there's this notion mm-hmm. that everybody should be doing the same thing. Uh, mm-hmm. At the same time that we have that, we also have this notion of, of different learning styles and differentiating. So if the parent speaks that kind of language to the teacher and, and then brings up the issues with their child, um, and, and, you know, to some extent there's uh, some research you could cite, you know, for kids that are, there's evidence, for example, that kids out on the spectrum have, on the autistic spectrum, actually have arousal patterns in their brain that are upsetting to them when they make eye contact. Right, mm-hmm. so there, there's evidence that yeah. some of this really, at a very, very kind of basic level, is painful, and so you, you can maybe, you know, with that angle, just to say a little bit more about your child and what makes your child uncomfortable, and and you know, you need to point out that you need to comfort as part of learning. You need to be, you know, in a low right. stress state in order to really learn, and so part of it is just getting across uh, these these issues that your child is having, and. Mm-hmm. Uh, that may or may not be obvious to the teacher. Mm-hmm. A lot of a lot of emphasis here on the parents being able to raise awareness and advocate for their child. Then, yeah, and yeah. bring that to the attention of the teacher. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 
Yeah, you know, and, and I think a lot of listen to your child too about uh, what what they're finding stressful at school. Sometimes, yeah, um, is helpful. Yeah, and I think mm-hmm. teachers mean well, and it's just that it's really hard if you have a large class to know what's going on yeah. with someone who's just retreating and not telling you a lot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yeah, teachers who've been oftentimes doing something the same way for a long time have trouble thinking about how it might be done differently. It's we always think that the student is the one that has to change, but sometimes it's uh, the adults can change more easily than the students can. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, unfortunately that's our school bell that says that we're at the end of our particular discussion today. This has been really interesting and it's certainly mm-hmm. something that we could talk about uh, for any length of time. But uh, thank you so much for being our guest thank today. You. And I would like to thank our listeners for tuning into our program this morning. Please join us for next week's show when we will talk with Mara Kaplan about developing and creating an inclusive environment during recess and playtime, two black holes in the school day. Uh, in the meantime, you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter, where Nicole tweets under the name Inclusive underscore class, and I am at Mamatude, M-A-M-A-T-U-D-E. Catherine, are you on Twitter? I am not. I just have a blog. Okay. What is the uh, role of your blog? Um, if you Google out in left field, if you just Google those words, okay. uh, and Catherine right. Beals, it'll come up. Yeah. It's It's okay. got a long name. All right. <laughs> so our, uh, our uh, listeners want to uh, learn more about what you're doing and about, about your uh, book and blog, they can search for that. Uh, and finally, uh, you can download our past podcasts for free on Stitcher and iTunes. Uh, goodbye, everybody, and have a great week. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.